questions from this week or, or from anything else? Juan Renee. Renee, Renee told me she had a question, so I don't know why she's... Oh! Naomi Olsgaard. You always sit up front, but the day you have a question... <laughs> so my question involve, actually involves the genealogy of Jesus, sort of. Yes. Um, it says that Jesus is of David, and you talked about that in the sermon but it only ever mentions Joseph being of David. Ooh. And jo- Jesus wasn't conceived through Joseph. So he was I've not at- conceived through Joseph, you're right. So I looked in the genealogy of Matthew, and it says in verse 16, like chapter 1, verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is yes. called the Christ. So it doesn't ever say, at least not in the Gospels that I've looked in, that Mary is of David's line. So do you have somewhere that you can tell? I do. And I deal with this more fully way back when, if you go to the Sermon Archive of the podcast, I believe and I argued that the genealogy in Luke, which is not identical to the genealogy in Matthew, is Mary's genealogy, not Joseph's. If you go back to Luke 2, I think it's Luke 2, right? Um, I'll try to explain that. No, that's a great question. It is absolutely essential that Mary be of Joseph, of David's line, else the promise is false. So we understand that Jesus gets his claim to the throne by being the adopted son of Joseph. That's his um, claim to the throne. But he needs to descend from David, use the language of the Davidic covenant, from your own body, right? What we call you know, genetics today. It needs to be in place. In Luke 2... And like I said, the genealogy is not identical. In fact, it's pretty different to Matthew. Um, it doesn't appear to be open to alternative. No, it's, it's, it's the beginning of four, right? That's the genealogy? Three? End of three. There we go. Okay, the end of three. Okay. Mm. So, and, and trying to remember, like, like I said, if you go back to the sermon... I, I did an entire message just on the genealogy and probably spent half the time dealing with this question, Naomi. So I'm trying to remember from my notes in my Bible. I'm trying to remember off the cuff that. So I may have to punt. But if I'm not, let me get the Greek up. That'll help here. I'm pretty sure I know what the issue is. Um, Yes, exactly. It's where the parentheses are. Thank you, Alex. Exactly. Boom. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, it's all a matter where you put the parentheses. Um, Luke 3, starting in verse 23. Okay. Okay. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Now, if you move the... um, parentheses, the bracket, over so that it includes Joseph, you get a slightly different reading. Totally possible in the Greek. Jesus was about 30 years of age, being the son, as supposed of Joseph, of Heli. Because after, after that, all you get is of, of. There's no more son. The word son occurs once in the text, and it's just of, of. The one of, the one of, the one of, the one of. So if you put the parentheses 
And there's no Greek parentheses. You, the, the reader is left to figure the relationship. So as Jesus was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, then it goes on. And the thought would just be the assumption that Mary is, is this is Mary's genealogy. Another strong reason for that is if this is a bogus genealogy, they make a pretty big mistake, pretty obvious mistake. Um, so jump down to... Where do they they miss they miss Solomon? That's the other big one. Um, so where would Solomon be in here? He would be after David. Uh, there we go. So yeah, thirty-one. The son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse. So they don't trace it through Solomon. What, but if, if you want to argue incompetence, see the Gospels make mistakes. If you want to argue these are the same genealogy, just Luke bungled it. That's a pretty big bungle to miss Solomon. I mean, seriously, who doesn't know David's son's name is Solomon? And it's Solomon who becomes king. So it doesn't appear Luke is trying to do that. And even if you want to argue a view that enables errors in the text, he's a moron if he misses Solomon. No, this is a different genealogy. And so there's only one other alternative of whose genealogy it is, and that's Mary. And grammatically, it works. I'd have to look at the Greek a bit longer and go back and look at my notes. But basically, it, it takes... Do you remember it better, Alex, than I am? You, you, you threw it at me. No? It's just the parentheses, yeah. Jesus, when he began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed of Joseph, of Heli. And then you, that goes on. Um, and it's linking to the male above Mary. But check out the message. It's a good question. I just am not prepared to answer further without going back and getting my notes and stuff. And I know I spent about 30 minutes trying to explain that far better than I'm doing now. So excellent question. You're absolutely right. It is essential that the Bible demonstrate Mary's genetic descent from David. And I believe it does here. Um, And I wish I could give you a fuller answer, but I simply am not prepared. Oh, it's probably, okay. There's a mic, use the mic. What? Sorry, we need to use the mic. Can we get another person to hand out a mic? Does anyone else want to hand out a mic? Because we we can do two, and then we can cue people up. Alex is going to do mics, too. Okay. Candy. Candy was talking. Okay. Join. I have in here on notes, it says Mary's father's name, 12614. Yeah. So you probably said that, and it's right by Heli. That'd be the assumption, yeah. That'd be the assumption that that's what you're getting. Um, okay. Oh, and Lee. Lee wants to jump in. Well, then when you're looking in Matthew, it says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph. So it right. clearly names his father, yeah, Ma- which Matthew, is not there. Matthew has to be Joseph. Yeah. And yeah. So either this is the worst forgery ever, and Luke is just bungling trying to copy. And again, how does a guy who gets so many other things right, like Tiberius Caesar in the sixth year of, I mean, he misses Solomon? And come on, that's, no, he's doing something else. And then once you realize he's doing something else, what else is he doing? There's only one other option. It's Mary's genealogy. Um, Okay. Other questions? Renee. Renee's got one. Okay. Um, Malachi 3.16, a book of remembrance. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and who 
<clears throat> and who meditate on his name. But in ESV, I was reading, I've always really loved that because it was like God wrote this book for us, is what I, I mm. thought it was saying. What's verse again? Uh, Malachi 3.16. 16, okay. <clears throat> but then in the ESV version, it said, so a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and okay. who meditate on his name. Or I don't have the ESV in front of me, but it was different. No, no, okay. And so your question is, compared to what other translation were you looking at? Oh, I'm in the, uh, this is the New King James. New King James verses. And, and in the King James, it also reads, uh, Book of Remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord. More like this version. So, okay. I just like your input on... Um, I don't know if I'm going to have much. That's okay. <laughs> well, I know it's... The way, to, the way to resolve that would be to take a look at the Hebrew, translate the yes. Hebrew, and then figure out... I am not prepared to do that on the okay. fly. My Hebrew is yes. pathetic. Okay. Um, okay. So. Yeah, and that's fine if you can't answer I'm it today. Hunting. I can get back next week and tell you sure. which one I think is better, but there's no way you want to sit while I try to parse out Hebrew right, verbs here right. now. So okay, thank you. I'll make a note to do that next week. Um, I don't know which one's a better translation. Yeah, Alex is going to read Young's Literal. I like Young's Literal because he doesn't even try to smooth things out. He'll just make it... Yeah, so read mm-hmm. it. So... Malachi 3.16. Then have those fearing Jehovah spoken one to another, and Jehovah doth attend and hear, and written is a book of memorial before him of those fearing Jehovah and of those esteeming his name. That's almost certainly like word for word. He doesn't make, yeah, Young's doesn't even try to smooth it out. He's just, his goal is to make the most literal translation possible. I don't know if that solves it or not, but. I'll get back to you next week is what I'll do. Okay. Other questions? And if you guys don't have questions, I actually have a whole prepared aside, so, but we'll see if you have questions. We're not going to have any dead space today. Linda, and then Steve. Oh, ladies first. Okay. Okay, so going back to 2 Samuel that you referenced mm-hmm. this morning, can yeah. you... Kind of expound on that a little bit, because yeah. were you saying that that's saying it's talking about Jesus all the way through? Because obviously Jesus did no wrong. So no, no, yeah. It, is it talking that's about both fir- Jesus and Solomon? Well, it's talking the prompt. Let's let's look at Second Samuel. This, let's go. It's worth spending some time here. The Davidic covenant is a passage to become familiar with. Um, so. Starting in verse 11, Here, let, me, let me see if I understand your question, and I'll give you my answer, and then we'll see if the, we can see it in the text. Is this about Jesus? Is it about Solomon? When does it become about Jesus? Is it about Jesus the whole time? It can't be because it talks about someone doing wrong. I think the answer is this. David, I'm going to give you an eternal covenant. Your offspring will always be on my seat of my throne, and I'll always be a father to him. And then that either is fulfilled by son after son after son after son after son, world without end, amen or eventually becomes a son who never dies. It could be either. It doesn't, we don't get to necessarily a specific, unique, eternal Davidite. We have an eternal succession of thrones that doesn't end. And it doesn't get broken by sin, and it doesn't get broken by death, and it doesn't get broken. It's sin-proof, death-proof, and eternal. That's all we get from it. So in the first instance, it's Solomon. He builds the temple, and Solomon does go astray, and the Lord disciplines him, and he does come back. But 
future messianic prophecies like Psalm 2 take this language and then it starts to make it clear that a very particular Davidite is coming with a universal rule from the sea to sea and the nations are well advised to kiss the son and do homage lest he crush you. So the messianic theology builds upon itself. So what this piece gives us is simply you're always going to have a son on the throne, David, and I'm always going to be a father to him and he's always going to be a son to me. That's what you get from the Davidic covenant. And then Psalm 2 takes that and starts pointing at a very particular Davidite who's coming. So here, it pertains to Jesus in so much as Jesus is a Davidite to whom the father is a father to him and he's a son to the father. Yes. But if you read it, it, it isn't in the first instance about Jesus. It's just about a perpetuous, perpetuous, perpetuity, perpetual. There we go. So let's just read it. Moreover, I will give you rest from all your enemies, verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled you and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. And I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, it's not Solomon's established forever. It's his throne and kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rods of men and the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. Now, if you remember, Saul receives the Holy Spirit, and Saul makes two grave errors. I mean, he makes multiple errors, but he makes two big ones. First, he offers the sacrifice that Samuel is supposed to offer, and he loses the dynasty. And then he spares Agag and the best of the sheep, and he loses the throne. And when that happens, the Holy Spirit leaves him, and according to Samuel, a harmful or an evil spirit from God came and tormented him. And David saw this because David was the one called in to play the harp to soothe his spirit with music. So David knows that just because in the Old Covenant you've received the Spirit and just because God's blessed you and put you in a position, it doesn't guarantee you can't fall from that. And here God is saying, I'm not going to do that. Your, your kid can be a bum, and Solomon was a bum for a portion of his life. And God does not abandon him. God does not desert him. God disciplines him and he brings him to repentance and restores him. And we get the book of Ecclesiastes as a result. Um, so that's the promise there. You can't sin this covenant away. It's sin-proof, it's death-proof, and it's eternal. When he commits, my steadfast love, verse 15, I will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So it's eternal. It's unending. It's not only good for eight generations. And so this, this, this promise is open to fulfillment in at least two ways. How this is going to happen? Will there just be descendant after descendant after descendant after descendant? After? That's one way. It's world without end. Or, and this is where I think Psalm 2 makes it clearer, Maybe there comes a special son of David who doesn't die. Now, that's not here yet. But we're seeing the way the scripture builds and develops these themes, which is where the, the chronology is important. That Psalm 2 is written after 2 Samuel 7. So that when Psalm 2 cites, I'm a father today, I've become your father, you are my son. And now we see this is a David king, Davidite king, who's going to rule from sea to shining sea, and he's also the Messiah, and he's also the son, and he's also the king, and he's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron. You go, okay, that guy ain't come yet. That, that person has not come yet. <laughs> now we're looking for a more particular 
son of David. And then Psalm 110, again, adding to that further. This is someone who David calls Lord and is sitting at God's right hand. He's not just any old Davidite. And that's, I think, Jesus' whole point. In 2 Samuel, all we get is, your throne and your kingdom will be forever, and I'm not going to take my love away from your descendants, and I'll have a father-son relationship with them. Which in Solomon's instance, I think, means that when he's enthroned, he has a peculiar relationship with God. And, and remember, the Hebrew notion of father and son is not genetics, but it is a typology. It's, it's, it's category. So that if you make peace, you'll be called sons of God because God makes peace. And, and so when, when Jesus tells the Pharisees that their father is the devil, he's not suggesting their mother had an affair. He's saying, you're at, the devil's a liar, you're lying, the devil's a murderer, you're trying to kill me, I know whose kids you are. So it's, it's like father like son, chip off the old block mentality. So to be God's son, then, is the one who on earth images and acts out his will, is what the king does. So Solomon, on the day he becomes king, enters into a sort of sonship relationship with God, in that he now mirrors, or ideally mirrors, God's will on earth ruling Israel. And so it's set, but it sets up this category that a king is a type of son, and then a very special son comes along. So Jesus, even in John, will call God Father, and he'll tell us to pray to call him Father, but he'll distinguish. I will pray to your God and to my God. I'll pray to your Father and my Father. Jesus does not, to the disciples, say our Father, because his sonship to God is unique, and it's not shared. We're sons and daughters of God, but not like Jesus is the Son of God. Does that... Answer well, and I think when you, when you said that about the throne versus the kingdom, I think that makes it a little bit more. Okay. Yeah. Well, because Solomon's going to die. <laughs> okay. Other? Oh, Steve Sparks. Uh, rule number four, never let the teacher run out of material and feel obligated to come up with something. Uh, no, I've, I've, got, I've got a whole sheet right here. Oh, I got it. Okay. I got a sheet. Um, oh, here's my sheet, actually. Jesus' footnotes, 45 to 47. I get a little confused when he, he criticizes long prayers for the sake of appearance and pray unceasingly. I think the real problem is my subject material. <laughs> I keep letting my... Um, Self-centered desires and wants bleed into God's will. So you're jumping ahead to next week's text? Is that right? Oh, I'm sorry. No, you're I fine. I just... You read it. I thought it was this week. I read it this week. It's showing the flow. What I was trying to show is that first Jesus attacks their hermeneutic. In other words, he's going to attack them personally. You guys are dirtbags. You guys are terrible people. But first, you guys are terrible at interpreting the Bible. And you've set yourself up in the seat of Moses as those who interpret the Bible and tell everyone else what it means. He, he said as much to them back in, uh, what is it, 12 or 13. Um, you not only, here's his charge to them, and he, he's furious about it. Where is it? Uh, it's the end of 11. You, you, yeah, verse 52. Two, woe to you lawyers. Now, the scribes and the lawyers, I think, are the same group. These are this, because they're not, what's Israel's legal code but the, the law? These are the students of Torah, law. Woe to you lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hinder those who are entering. You have claimed interpretive control. 
Similar to how in the Roman Catholicism, the church and the magisterium has interpretive control. We will tell you what the text means, and our interpretations are binding. The lawyers and the scribes have claimed interpretive control, and they're demonstrably wrong in their interpretation. That's the first attack. You guys don't know how to read the Bible, and you say you're the Bible interpreters. Then, next week... You guys are terrible people. That's the two-flow attack. So first, your claim to authority, your credential for leadership is bogus, and your personal lives are horrific. And in that context, I think the, the long prayers are long public prayers to be seen. I mean, maybe the equivalent is you have people over for dinner, and you want to seem very spiritual, so you have like a 10-minute dinner prayer. I think that's the type of thing Jesus is getting at. He's by no means rebuking Long prayer in general. You're absolutely right. We're going to pray without ceasing. In the context, beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, and there's the other point, it's not sincere, for a pretense make long prayers. And I would assume long public prayers. In other places in the Gospels, they'd sound gongs. If people had to sound a gong before they gave money to the poor. Like, everyone look at this righteous man. He's about to do an act of kindness. So I think what he's rebuking with long prayers is pretentious, fake, insincere for public praise prayers. And certainly, by all means, pray without ceasing. Amen. But I'm not as prepared for this because that's next week. So that's my off-the-cuff thought. Oh, Marina wants. Do you want to add to that, Marina? Oh, she has another question. So before we go on to Marina's question, do you want to go further than that, Steve, or does that answer your question? Or just got me started. Okay. Marina's next. Could you clarify the term scribes a little bit? Mm -hmm. I'm not, I mean, I'm pretty sure the Pharisees and the Sadducees, is the scribes a third group or is that just a a summary? And they can bleed into both. Okay, so the scribes are the legal experts. They are the ones who not only have memorized most, if not all, of the Torah, but have also memorized and are familiar with the Talmud and basically rabbinical interpretations. So, like, whereas we have commentaries today, they, their, their older rabbis um, became authoritative. And then there's interpretations of them. And they, it's weird. They'd have it in the page would be... Like, here's the text, here'd be the text of the Torah, and around it, three-dimensionally, I mean, not three-dimensionally, but all around it would be the, the, the writings of the rabbis, and then around that could be a further thing. So they, they had to be masters of all of this, and they were the ones you'd go to. They're the experts for resolving issues. And resol- I mean, because remember, the, the, the law of Moses governed every aspect of life, civil, um, boundary markers, complaints, um, someone attacked you and robbed you. You, you, you wanted a lawyer. You wanted a scribe who would interpret the text. Now, I'm guessing there could be scribes and interpreters who favored more of the Sadducees' more liberal approach, and there are probably scribes who favored more of the Pharisees' conservative approach. And there seems to be some in that group, but yeah, they, they are a distinct group. The scribes seem to be attached to the priesthood and the priests in the temple, but, yeah, they're differing groups. And we've got differing titles for groups throughout. And there is some bleed over, no doubt. But, no, they are distinct. They're first introduced in Chapter 5 alongside of the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees. So we know that they sync up with them. 
And at least here, and I'm just speculating there are scribes who favor the Sadducees. The scribes liked Jesus putting the Sadducees in their place. So when Jesus refutes them and proves the resurrection, well done, the scribes say. So at least these scribes are not liberal scribes. They're more conservative in nature. So the Pharisees weren't the interpreters. The Pharisees were the implementers. They were the social change people. They were the ones making and getting the interpretations of the scribes into practice in public. That was their job. They set up the synagogues in every community. So the Pharisees are running the synagogues, getting it back into communal life. The, the Sadducees are running the temple with the priesthood. And the scribes appear to move into both groups as the legal experts over meaning of the text. Is that, that's as best, at least, as I can reconstruct it. But it's, no, it's a good question. And there does seem to be some blending, you know. And then you got the elders mentioned at the end of 19. Like, who are they meant? Are they a distinct group? The chief men? And I think part of what Luke's doing with shifting these terms around is all of Israel's leadership, whether it be secular, whether it be religious, whether it be conservative, whether it be liberal, Jesus is fighting them all. They hate Jesus, and they're taking them on. And so that way... All of Israel's leadership is unified in their opposition to Jesus, not just some of them, you know. Okay. Linda. <laughs> Sorry. No problem. Maybe I should save this for next week since you're going there. But mm. as you were talking about that, answering Steve's question, I'm thinking, so the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, would that be equivalent to this? That certainly could be. It's possible someone goes to the Wailing Wall without any thought of people seeing them, without any thought of, 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 of public exposure, and they could be quite sincere. That's possible, right? Um, certainly the Wailing Wall would give opportunity for a person who wanted to be seen, who wanted to be seen as very religious and very contrite. The Wailing Wall gives them opportunity for that. So I don't want to say all of that is that, but certainly it's the type of place where you can be seen being religious and being very spiritual. Because it seems like most of the pictures, and I know they're not, you know, they're 24-7, but it seems like most of the pictures you see is always the men with the hats and, the, you know, the whole accoutrement thing. And so... My, my I mean, only hesitation... And it's out there in public. I yeah. mean, anyone who goes there is going to yeah. be in public yeah. because it's right out there in the middle, you know. But... But I'm saying, right. but some Jews might think this is as close as I'll ever get to the temple because this is the foundation. It's really the only architecture left of Herod's temple. It's the foundation of the temple wall. Uh, it's not even the temple. Jesus' statement, the temple would be taken apart stone by stone, is literally fulfilled. But it's the closest you're ever to get to that. I can picture some Jew. I don't care what anyone else sees. I just want to go get as close as I can to the temple and pour out my heart. I don't know. I just don't know enough about it to want to say, yeah, that's what they're all doing. It certainly, I'm sure, is done, and that's exactly the type of place things like that would be done. And I have no doubt Israeli politicians, just as our own American politicians recently, make sure they get photo ops near the wall being very contrite. And I'm sure they do that for all the, the points it's worth, no doubt. And Jesus lets us know what God thinks of that. He's not impressed. Okay. Bob. Uh, as you look at uh, the passage, the section that you've been going through uh, in the past weeks in Luke 20, yeah. um, the, prior, the prior passages relate to proving that there is a resurrection. 
And then Jesus suddenly goes into this section about uh, Psalm 110. And if you look in Acts chapter 2, with Peter's sermon, when he quotes Psalm 110, the identical section, he uses that to prove that there is a resurrection. So I'm just wondering if part of what um, part of what Jesus is doing is just now putting frosting on the cake to establish beyond any question that these scribes and scribes and Sadducees are wrong about the resurrection. Yes. Well, and there's further intertextuality. Go to Psalm 16. There's intertext. I mean, what's fascinating. My whole aside is I got a whole thing here. If we want to go through tracking the Old Testament's development of the Messiah. But Psalm 16 gets picked up by Psalm 110. And in Psalm 16, you get the clearest proof of resurrection. Um, Let's go to Psalm 16. There we go. Um, So look at, uh, this is a, a song of David crying out to God. And we'll just read the whole psalm. Preserve me, okay, sorry, now i got to take my own advice. A mitzkam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not put out, pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel, and the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. For flesh, My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption or decay. And that's cited in Acts 13. Of proof of the resurrection, because David is dead and his body is moldering over in that tomb. So that, that's exactly what Paul says. But now look at the next thing. Um, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. This Davidite, who isn't David because David's body is dead and decayed, is confident that God will not leave his soul in the realm of the death, nor let his body decay, but in fact will restore him to his right hand. That's where he's going to be, at God's right hand. Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And the early church made that connection, and so the reference to right hand is linking with Psalm 16 and the promise of resurrection. And so what they understood was, instead of God leaving Jesus in the realm of the dead, he has not allowed his body to decay and instead is seated them at his right hand until his enemies are made a footstool. That was their understanding. Where is Jesus right now? Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father awaiting his enemies who made his footstool. That's where Jesus is right now. And they connected Psalm 16 with Psalm 110 to put that together. That's, that's my understanding of it at least. Um, and that's exactly what uh, Acts chapter 2 argues. Right. Goes right. to exactly the same point. Yeah. So, no, so, the early church, rather than unhitching field, I know you guys get yeah. tired of that, they did a lot of deep biblical thinking connecting these things. In other words, it's kind of like once you see them answer at the back of the math book, the Messiah gets killed horribly and raises from the dead, you start going back and read, oh, 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 there it is. And then they started putting it together. 
because the stuff is there. They're just so ingrained with their nationalistic approach. The Messiah is going to come, and he's going to exalt Israel and throw off the pagan oppressors. Well, he will. That's part of what he'll do. It's not the first thing he's going to do. <laughs> and they stumbled over that, you know? Um, no, ab- absolutely. So, no, Psalm 110 is, is huge messianically. It gets quoted a lot. Author of Hebrews has a lot to say about that as well, about the Melchizedek part that comes up later, right? I mean, we haven't even touched that. We're just at verse 1. Absolutely. You want to say more? Or is that? Well, that pretty well covers it. All right. Okay. Alex. So something I've wondered in the past is how God uh, tells David that I'll establish your throne forever. How does that work with what happens when Judah goes into exile? Or is it only talking about once Christ comes, then it's established forever? Uh, That's a good question. I... I'll tell you what I, what I think the answer is, but I wouldn't get dogmatic with it. I mean, this, is, this would be a good thing with discussion. I think that it's unbroken. Even though there's years where it doesn't exist, it's not a broken dynasty. Dynasty, sorry. My English traits came out. Greg Sweet gets on me if I say dynasty. Um, so much easier. But um, the, the dynasty is intact, even though there's 70 years or more without rule. It's unbroken, in that sense, and it is ultimately eternal. That's one answer. The other answer is no, it's just looking, it's just looking to when it comes in its fullness. I tend to think it's more of the other because I, I have a hard time not seeing Solomon's rule as being in part envisioned. Um, so I tend to think more of it like it's an eternal, unending rule because even though for a period of time, because he talks even about disciplining with the rods of men, maybe the rods of men's Babylon. But that that it doesn't terminate, unlike Saul's, because the contrast is Saul. Unlike Saul's dynasty, it terminates, right? But isn't a throne like symbolizing a ruling king, like a king that is ruling over something? So when it says his throne will be established forever. Well, his, so, so what do you do if the throne's established but the king's off being disciplined with the rods of men? I, I, I'm viewing it purely simply as the perpetuation of your rule and kingdom. It's, it's intact. Someone may not be occupying the seat right now because they're off getting spanked. But there's a throne to come back to is, is how I've approached it. You could answer, as you suggested, no, it's really just envisioning the, the kingdom once the Messiah comes. I suppose that's possible. I've always looked at it as the former, though. And, and it's a newer thought, and if anyone wants to remember that, they're welcome to. I just, that's as far as I can go with it right now. Um. Well, if you look at history, right? Yes. Uh, British history, they've always had a king on the throne, but he wasn't always in England. I mean, Richard the Lionheart, right? right. He was on the throne, right. but he spent like two years in England. He was on, out on the Crusades and he even died in Europe. So you Ooh. don't physically have to have the guy on the throne. And that happened to a lot of kings throughout history in different countries in Europe. Mm. It's the well, dynasty. Let me show you something very, no, let me show you something very interesting. Do you, know how, um, do you know how the book of Jeremiah ends? Let's find out. Yeah, let's find out. <laughs> Dun, dun, dun. 
Um, now, Jeremiah, as you know, is this horrific book that ends with the destruction of Jerusalem. Zedekiah is blinded after his sons are slaughtered in front of him. The people are taken away. The people are taken away. The people are taken away. I think it's Jeremiah. It might be Second Chronicles, but I think it's Jeremiah. I think, I'm, I, think I got this one. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, you know, like when, nowadays when you see a movie... Halfway through the credits, this is like post-credit scene. I picture the book of Jeremiah like this, just, just descent down into absolute ruin and destruction. It sets up the devastation that he responds to emotionally in Lamentations. He's just absolutely torn to pieces. And yet there's this postscript at the end of Jeremiah. Okay? So let's read from 24. The captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city, he took an officer who had been in command of the men at war, and seven of the king's council who were found in the city, and the secretary and the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land, and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the midst of the city, and Nebuchadnezzar the captain, and Nebuzardan, sorry, that's a name for your kid, Nebuzaradan, sorry, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. The king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. This is the number of the people whom Nebuchadnezzar carried away captive. In the seventh year, 3,023 Judeans. In the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar, he carried away captive from Jerusalem, 832 persons. In the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive the Judeans, 745 persons. All the persons were 4,600. Okay, so there's, there's the end. They're carried away. Now we get this. In the 37th year of the exile, so thir- we've just jumped 37 years ahead. In the, 30- in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, who's a Davidite, by the way, in the 12th month, on the 20th day of the month, evil Merodach, there's a name for you, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs until the day of his death, as long as he lived. What do you think the point of that postscript is? God hasn't forgotten his promises to David, and he's looking after the Davidic king in exile. That's the point of that postscript. It's a little light of hope. Israel is wrecked, destroyed, off the land, taken. And 37 years later, we are to be shown this act of kindness to a Davidic king in exile. It's the little postscript, it's a little nod at the end of the movie that lets you know the story's not done yet. So that's what I'm saying by perpetuation of the throne. He's not, ruling, he's not ruling anything, right? But clearly in God's eyes, he's a Davidite that God's looking after. And here's this little evidence. Otherwise, what's the importance of that? Anyway, 37 years later, some king was nice to this guy. If it's not to remind us, hey, the story's not done yet, you know? Um, okay, other thoughts, questions? Oh, all the way in the back. Nail me again. 
I was just curious why um, 4,600 persons was significant when there's likely millions of Jews in Israel. Um, they were so beaten, besieged, and battered that this, that's part of it is to show you just how pathetic and pitiful it is. And the number who returned from Babylon is even more pathetic. I mean, what we're seeing is the humiliation of Israel. This nation that once was great and strong and had millions and millions of people within it is now measured by the thousands and is now ripped off the land. They come back in an even more meager amount. Uh, Nehemiah and Ezra tell you the numbers who return, again, are just thousands. They're not lots of people. And so I think that's the point. I'd have to study in more detail to give you a fuller answer. But that's, if anyone wants to run with that, or Zeb, you look like you wanted to know? No, Zeb's good. Okay. No, no, excellent question. How can this nation be reduced to this small? Well, they've just endured a siege to end all sieges, and they've been slaughtered, and I'm sure people in the country have fled. Um, and so when, Nebuchadnezzar, when the walls finally come down, a couple thousand Jews are taken out of Jerusalem. And I think the other assumption is everyone else is dead. Um, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar was brutal, um, brutal in his, his vengeance upon Israel for their, for their this breaking of their word. I mean, what's rough, I mean, because Jeremiah is telling them, stop fighting him, stop fighting him. God's given you into his hands. Stop. And the last thing Zedekiah does, he makes, he makes an agreement with, with Nebuchadnezzar. We'll be your vassal state. We'll give you tribute. And Nebuchadnezzar's going to leave him be. And then he tries to make an alliance with Egypt to fight him. And Nebuchadnezzar finds out, and he's like, Pfft. you know, um, yeah. Okay, we got six minutes. i got to let you on on time because of the new attendee fellowship, so we can't go late. I know that's going to distress you, but I'm going to let you on on time today. Any other, any, any other questions? What? Oh, okay. Anybody? Oh, we got one. This may give an argument or another argument to the lineage of Mary mm. in your statement, but it also causes confusion for me. Um, according to everything I've read, Judaism is based on the lineage of a matriarchal society. And Jewish Orthodox law says that the son or daughter of a Jewish mother is yes. the Jewish lineage. However, the Bible is almost totally matriarchal in pa its patri lineage. Patriarchal, you mean? Patriarchal, I mean, yeah. That's, so that's the confusion. Yeah. No, no, that, that was a very clear shift. No, you're absolutely right. If you, go through the, uh, if you go through the genealogies in Numbers and the genealogies in First Chronicles, they're almost exclusively male. In fact, Matthew includes three women, and the three women he includes are very, very, very significant because they're all embarrassing. Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute, Ruth, a Moabitess, and Bathsheba, a adulterous wife. Um, and they're the only women in Matthew's genealogy. After the deportation by Titus, after Israel scattered, and they've lost all of their records. That was a big deal. When the temple's burned by Titus, they lose all of their descent records. They don't, like right now, they can pretend they know. No Jew knows what tribe they're part of. They lost all of that. 
after that, they switched to matriarchal records. So after 70 AD is a clear shift where because Jewish women were raped and mistreated, they tracked descent not by the father but by the mother. So if your mother was Jewish, you're Jewish. But that's a post AD 70 shift that's pretty clearly documented. No, you're absolutely right. It's prior to AD 70, father's descent, the genealogies track the men by and large, almost exclusively, after 70 AD, as they're trying to figure out who they are, there's so many half-Jewish children of mothers who are Jewish that they just take them all in, and they don't try to distinguish. And so since then, it's been tracked along the mother's line. So no, it's it's an excellent observation, but there's a clear historical answer. They just simply switched sometime after 70 AD. And prior to 70 AD, it's, it's patriarchal, and then it becomes matriarchal. Um, no, good, good, good observation. Good. I hope that helps. But yeah, that's and you can look that up and track that. That's when that shift occurred. Okay, we have five minutes. Okay. Um, I just want to close some of the few words just on on scripture and inerrancy in the Old Testament. Um, I, I've been really impressed in just these last two weeks at how rich the Old Testament is. I mean, our Lord shut down two entire religious groups with two verses. He cited Genesis, I mean, Exodus 3 6. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. Sadducees, you're wrong. Done. Scribes. How's he David's Lord if he calls how's he David's son if he calls him Lord? One verse from Psalm 110 shuts them down. I mean, he isn't writing research papers. He's citing a verse and he's dealing with the text seriously. And so I would inc- I, I find great courage and encouragement from this. You know, I go to a school and they train you to diagram sentences and do grammar. And there's not a lot of people these days that do that. And you wonder sometimes, are we making mountains out of a molehill? They'll accuse us of being bibliolatry, we're worshiping the Bible, and passages like this, arguments like this really encourage me. No, we want to read our Bible the way Jesus read his Bible, and Jesus clearly thought long and hard over little points of grammar. Psalm 110 says David wrote it. It's a whole argument. I mean, I got a quote I'll read you. You have no idea how how unpopular it is in any sort of academic Christian world to ascribe that the psalm titles are valid. I'll I'll read a quote from um, Daryl Bach. A great deal of energy has been spent arguing that Jesus' remark is not a declaration of Davidic authorship for Psalm 110. In this view, the mention of David is like New Testament references to the Torah that go on to cite the prophets or is a generic reference to David as the author of the Psalter. In fact, it is often argued that the speaker in the psalm is a prophet and not David. Then he cites some commentators. Another example of this phenomenon is, and he gives some other examples. Then he says this, Any position that sees a prophet speaking in Psalm 110 ignores the force of Jesus' argument. For there is no tension in the passage, and his point is invalidated if David himself is not the speaker. He's absolutely right. I mean, if you go back to the, the flow of the argument, if a person could say, no problem, Jesus. We think Ethan the Ezraite wrote Psalm 110, and so he's just envisioning the Lord God talking to David, whom he would rightly call his Lord. No problem, Jesus. 
Now, the entire argument demands something as little as the psalm title being accurate and reliable. Um, and, and so Jesus' arguments and his reasoning with the text then becomes the model we should follow. So then we likewise should be thinking carefully about the Bible and what it says, which is what you were doing earlier, Renee, when you were asking just how that phrase in Malachi works, because partly we need to know what it says um, if we're going to think carefully about it. So um, I don't think inerrancy was an uh, enlightenment invention. I think Jesus is a pretty staunch inerrantist, and he's, he's down to verbal grammar levels. Um, not just the thought, not just the big picture, but literally how it was said. I am not I was of David. Anyway, we are up for time. I will see you all next week. God bless. If you're going to the New Attendee Fellowship, hopefully the room will be made over and you can make your way to the fireside room, which is where it will be taking place. Thank you.